as much as healthcare is moving towards a more, you can call it holistic, you can call it whole body, like thinking about like a whole person type of care, we can never get to that point if we're not being informed by the individual experiences and the multitude of identities that each of our patients, our members out there have an experience. That was Dr. Ramon Jacobs-Shaw. That is just a teaser of what you'll hear today. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. Healthcare rights of LGBTQ folks have become a center point of culture wars across the country. No matter where you stand, no one can deny this. States have passed down dozens of laws restricting care for trans people this year. Reproductive insurance coverage for this population is scant. And also, ethical care for intersex people is still contested. Okay. However, healthcare struggle with how to conceptualize queerness is nothing new. Homosexuality was classified in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, starting with the first edition in 1952. And there have been some changes in how to classify it through the years, like personality disturbance or disorder, but it wasn't until the fifth edition of the DSM that homosexuality was removed entirely, and that was in 2013. We can see societal norms and expectations around LGBTQ plus identities have changed and have moved away from being a pathology, and now they're celebrated. Annie Berkey has been covering this topic for Fierce Healthcare for some time. She talked with Dr. Ramon Jacobshaw on a previous Podnosis episode about care, discrimination, and what support looks like for the queer community. Dr. Jacobshaw is Chief Clinical Officer at Belong Health. Annie Berkey invited him back on the show to talk about intersectionality and to take a closer look at a group that has been ignored in the LGBTQIA conversation. That's the plus part, LGBTQ+. And that group is intersex individuals. So here they are. Dr. Ramon, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us again. Annie, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back on. So last time we spoke, we discussed the healthcare needs of the queer community more broadly. In your own work, especially with something like the LGBTQ task force at NYU, how do you balance talking about LGBTQ care and ensuring that the group is not seen as a monolith? I think that it's easy for some people to, to look at the LGBTQ plus population as a monolith, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the challenge there is in trying to educate people on the, 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 the various identities that are kind of within that LGBTQ plus um, acronym, right? And honestly, I think it may be there to make it a little easier for people to batch us into that um, umbrella term who uh, mm. who maybe don't fall within the you know within within the spectrums there. Um, so it can be challenging to talk about that, but also to to grab the attention of people and and have enough of a dialogue and conversation with someone to like truly explain the differences there between the different the different identities and if you think about it gosh you could just talk about the various identities one much less the challenges the opportunities that exist within each of those identities across mm-hmm. we're talking about healthcare but you talk about you know society and culture and 
uh, and everything else. And then you're, you're having like many, many heavy, deep conversations about those things. So I find it, it it's an introduction. And I think the mm-hmm. term is like an introduction to then having like a broader conversation. Yeah, it's interesting because oftentimes terms and labels like that are more for people on the outside, to your point. Like oh, people on the outside 100%. refer to it more so as the LGBTQ community. So I, I think like hand in hand in that is a conversation about intersectionality when we're talking about individuality. Um, as a provider, how do you bring an awareness of intersectionality into your practice? I wrote about intersectionality in healthcare a few a few years ago. Um kind of looking at it from the lens of how do how do I inform and educate my peers and colleagues out there about people and, and their identities? Um, having a conversation with people that these identities um, are not monolithic. They're not all like just one identity. They're not all identities that operate separately from your other identities. Like mm-hmm. within... Within an individual, an individual could have many identities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it would be, I think it would be really unwise to think that those identities somehow don't influence each other. Mm-hmm. So specifically, um, let's say the experience of a gay Native American woman living in the Midwest may be very different uh, than someone who lives in New York City or a large kind of urban area, each of those identities has their own potential challenges in society, right? Like what they, what they have experienced out there uh, in society, on the street, in their job, in their communities. Like I tend to look at this and have often described those identities as not just additive, right? Like additive mm-hmm. discriminations, for example, like the the gay and the Native American part and the woman part, um, but they tend to be multiplicative, right? Mm-hmm. And the experience mm-hmm. of that particular person with those identities are going to look potentially vastly different than someone who has their host of identities as well. So there's a bit of education that you have to you have to do with people, peers, colleagues when you're talking about you know, these diff- different I- identities, because in healthcare, people are just not aware of the term intersectionality at all, and not mm-hmm. aware of how these identities can kind of intersect um, and affect each other. Yeah, there's not a, a box for that exactly on an EHR form. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can not a box for a lot certain of things, boxes, Annie. but it's, yeah, you're right, there's not. Um, and But that in particular, I- yes. Yeah. How do you look at someone as a whole, um, even if the system and the structures of the system are kind of working against you in that regard? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, as much as healthcare is moving towards a more, you can call it holistic, you can call it whole Mm -hmm. body, like thinking Mm -hmm. about like a whole person type of type of care, uh, we can never get to that point if we're not being informed by the individual experiences and the mm-hmm. multitude of identities that each of our uh, our patients, our members out there, like have an experience. And we won't know that from like traditional surveys, traditional like yeah. intake and demographics that you see as part of EHR. Like you won't know that. The way you know that is to form bonds and relationships with your patients mm-hmm. and or members, depending on which angle you're coming from. 
forming relationships, getting to know who they are so that that can inform your interactions with that. And then you can't make generalizations from that one patient that's sitting in front of you right now to like the next patient at all, because they're going to be varied. They're going to be unique. Um, and we just have to be very, very mindful of that if we're really focused on whole person, whole person care. Yeah. And I think oftentimes when we're talking about intersectionality, we oftentimes immediately go to um, the things that oftentimes can be easily checked on EHR forms. Um, Things like race, things like gender identity, sexual identity. Um, But we're also talking about poverty. We're also talking about being differently abled. And one in three queer adults self-report having a disability Um, According to the Human Rights Commission, these individuals are also more likely to experience discrimination, poverty, and unmet health needs. Um, You talked a lot about like focusing on educating your peers. Um, And I think that's a part of this is how can healthcare better support these individuals? But also like when we're looking at these systems and structures that already exist, how do you think intersectionality relates to patients on things like dual special needs plans? Yeah, ex- excellent question. So in my in my role, I'm the chief clinical officer with Belong Health, and, and what our expertise is in is in that dual eligible special needs population. Mm-hmm. So for for the audience, uh, dual eligible um, status is is a person who is eligible for both Medicaid and and Medicare. Um, in in many places around this country you could get your Medicaid and Medicare from two different sources, uh, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a big challenge when, you're, when your payers are administered by different entities, which means that there's uh, less kind of um, care coordination that could potentially happen mm-hmm. in that, benefit coordination that can happen from that. Um, and so it's always best to kind of like have um, where possible, more of those integrated benefits that are kind of like housed within the same entity or organization. Um, mm-hmm. And so when I think about the DSNET population, um, the DSNET population is, oh, how's the best way to put this? DSNET populations have been overlooked and looked past by everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's just be honest. They've been looked over and looked past from health systems, from from my my provider peers, uh, from from payers out there, um, mm-hmm. because uh, people fear that population. Because mm-hmm. what we know is that the decent population is is vulnerable and probably one of the most vulnerable populations um, in general. It's not so much the decent designation that makes you vulnerable. It's all of the things that affect you in a way that affect your income status, for example, or your chronic conditions, your health status, that make you eligible to become a person for DSNP. So all of those things that can affect your health can affect your eligibility for DSNP. And so when we think about what the things that affect your health, of course, traditionally, people tend to think about health as what kind of health conditions do you have? Do you have chronic conditions like mm-hmm. hypertension or diabetes or heart failure, those kind of things? But also what's often not talked about in there, especially amongst kind of like non-clinical uh, folks, is what we call social determinants of health that then influence your health. So one of those things could be 
income status. So particularly if you're a lower income status, um, that lower income status can like really inform where you live, mm -hmm. your access to healthcare within where you live. So you may be living in pockets of uh, the country or pockets of your community that don't have as much healthcare density in that, like primary care, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but then all, also other things affect that, right? Your like um, the education level potentially that can impact your income status, um, uh, your citizenship status. And if you think about it, if you break it down, that is intersectionality right there. Mm -hmm. These are multiple identities that an individual has, whether those are identities that you can readily recognize from looking at a person, but also identities that you may not readily uh, be able to recognize just just from external, just from what a person may may look like um, or carry themselves or dress like even. So those all those different things, the social determinants are identities of an individual. And those identities, as I mentioned earlier, they intersect with each other. And oftentimes those intersections, when we talk about intersectionality, we, we sometimes talk about intersectionality from the perspective of how do those identities potentially adversely affect you, right? Mm. And that's what I mean when I say that those, those ones are not so much additive because, you know, someone who ascribes or, or to, to being like a gay man, for example, uh, may suffer more bias or discrimination than another individual of a different identity. Mm -hmm. So... So intersectionality is very important, and those identities really do inform um, healthcare, but also people's potential access to um, to things like dual eligibility for Medicaid and Medicare. We're now getting to a point where people are actually realizing that, like, sex has also been a false binary. And another group that I think has been very much ignored is the I in LGBTQIA uh, intersex individuals. Absolutely. I, this is a broad question. I have a few follow-ups that get more nitty-gritty. Um, what does it mean to be intersex, and what unique challenges does that population face in healthcare? Such a great question. So intersex, 2% um, of the general population, um, really human sex, the way we have all talked about human sex over, what, <laughs> centuries, eons, yeah. Um <laughs> Human sex spans more than beyond the binary, and this is where the intersex population kind of kind of resides. It's um, with intersex um, or the category of intersex. It's more of a spectrum. So there can be uh, physical, um, hormonal, or genetic variances um, that kind of fall within that intersex diaspora. Mm -hmm. um, that can range from you know, things that are like hormonal, abner uh, hormonal type of differences, such as like androgen insensitivity, but can also have like chromosomal differences where someone may have, uh, you know, uh, an extra X chromosome, an extra Y chromosome, or maybe missing parts of the X and the Y, for example. And, and those kind of um, differences are uh, uh, folks who may have a diagnosis of like Klinefelter's or Turner syndrome. I say all of that to say that intersex is more of a biological difference, mm. more so than it is a pathology. Um, mm. And I think that, listen, LGBTQ plus people have often been grouped into 
pathological categories, yes. right? There's something pathologic there. There's something mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. And that has been that has been the conversation for so long. Um, and it's been the conversation that has existed throughout healthcare, honestly, for, you know, yeah. for, for hundreds of years, um, up until probably the past, I would say probably the past 20 years or, or, or so ago with, with updates to the DSM and the categories and, and all of that. Folks who are intersex um, experience this as well. And and the reason they experience it is a lack of awareness of what intersex is. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the concerns that someone who identifies as intersex, those concerns are somewhat similar to what someone who identifies as transgender, who walks into an office um, and what they experience with their providers or medical staff it's dissatisfaction with treatment. It's mm. absence of patient-friendly material around that. Like, think about the last time, like, you went to your doctor, I went to my doctor. Where was there anything related to anything like this anywhere? I've yeah. never seen it, period. Yeah. What blew my mind when I started, when I went on a deep dive in this area was that some people don't know until their 40s that they're intersex, that they, they've been having challenges because they've been, they haven't been supported. Um, because no one gave them the information of this is a part of who you are. But I think the scariest part of where we can see like healthcare really failing these individuals is surgeries done when children are quite young. Um, and that's a question I have for you is like to what extent these surgeries are still happening. I understand that when children are born, sometimes if they are born intersex in a way that is visible to the provider, um, sometimes surgery is necessary, medically necessary, and sometimes it is done to put the child more firmly into the sex male female binary are those surgeries still happening <sighs> that's so the the WHO the World Health Organization various american medical groups societies um, all say at this point not to do surgeries so mm-hmm. what had been happening before even when I was being, even when I was being trained, you know, over, over 20 years ago, is that uh, people who had that biologic difference, if it was a parent at birth, um, mm-hmm. there was an advocate, there was advocacy for having a corrective, I'm using my quote fingers for all the folks on mm-hmm. audio here, I'm <laughs> using my quote fingers to correct or normalize um, uh, the appearance of the genitalia by having some sort of genital surgery. And that could be something to um, to surgically intervene on clitoromegaly or micropenis or hypospadias or a variety of of other um, of other uh, differences there. But all of these groups are basically saying, "Don't do that. Don't do that off the bat." The reason being is that um, now the caveat to that. Let me give the caveat. The caveat is that if a person has a condition that is that uh, could potentially be dangerous, or if if not treated, like especially like a, one of the hormonal differences, um, that could lead to something like a diagnosis of cancer early in life. Mm-hmm. That would be a different situation than most of these. The vast majority of these are not going to lead to something more dangerous or cancer causing or something like that. So the goal is to actually delay that. And why do we want to delay that? We want to delay that conversation. We want to delay any sort of potential intervention there until that patient is, that person is older, 
um, mm-hmm. and can be part of an informed decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Um, because what we're talking about here is like these, these biomedical interventions, some of them are irreversible. Yeah. Some of them are irreversible. And, um, and, and people can have complications as a result of that. Um, not saying that all people do, but, but there is a risk of that, right? Whether it's um, pain as a result of surgery, trauma, even PTSD as a result of that, um, a change to someone's sexual desire, for example. Um, and some of these things can be, can be chronic or lifelong. And so why put someone through that if there's not an immediate need or, or necessity to do that? Let them grow up. Um, but also at the same time, at the same time, Annie, helping people to understand that you're not a pathology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That this is just a difference and you're, you may be different than other people that that doesn't make you lesser than or other than. Um, and I think that's part of like what people should understand about the intersex population um, is that, that you may be different from someone else, but it doesn't make you like any, any less than that other person. You are who you are and people should accept you for that. Which just sounds like was what the WHO was trying to communicate of like, this is not a pathology. There is just a million ways to be a human and they're all valid. Like there are very few invalid ways to be a human. In the beginning of this conversation, we, um, you mentioned social determinants of health, which used to be a fringe term. It's now something everyone's talking about. Uh, Value-based care used to be a hot topic. Now it is a reimbursement code from CMS. Lots of reimbursement codes in that realm. Um, we also see population specific providers like folks health for the queer community and shine for people of color. Are there new models, uh, new offerings, new hopes that you are wanting to highlight to share with others right now? I think that in the startup realm, you named two excellent ones there, um, shine and, um, and folks. Uh, but also I think that in the payer realm, I think there's loads of opportunities there. Um, I've been particularly, um, impressed with what scan healthcare is doing. Now scan is Mm -hmm. a, uh, nonprofit, um, um, health plan in Southern California based out of Long Beach. Mm -hmm. Um, and scan, um, scan launched a new, a Medicare Advantage plan um, called Affirm, and this is specifically for people who identify as LGBTQ+. Um, and this is kind of the first of its kind. And I think by launching this program um, and have it be a successfully launched program shows that, listen, in the payer space, we should be paying attention to these various groups that have often been looked past and looked over like the DSNP population, the LGBTQ population, um, and really start to think about how can we develop new products, new plans uh, that can help fill in what some of those gaps may be. And some of those gaps may be, you know, access to community resources or access to certain, you know, benefits within the plan that could help support people who have often been overlooked in the plan and product and benefit design of these things. So there's no limit to where these kind of care models, interventions, 
um, can like really reside as long as it's really affecting and helping the populations that need it the most. Thank you again for coming back for another wonderful conversation. Um, I hope it's not the last time we speak. I hope not either. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FierceHealthcare.com. And don't forget to tune in every Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.